Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Your weekly emergency handout in these trying times. <laughs> Although unfortunately now 10% more expensive thanks to problems with the supply lines of imported jokes about Boris Johnson. I'm Andrew Harrison and I'm out of my John Luke Picard chair and into the studio for the first time in two years. Uh, we regret to say that due to holidays, today's panel is actually an all-male mammal. So we'll try not to do this too often, but unfortunately, you know, it's August. Now, let me re-familiarise myself with the guests. Joining us today is political commentator and polymath Alex Andreo. Hello, Alex. Have we met? Your accent seems familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so Boris Johnson is on holiday again, uh, recently pitching in a Greek supermarket, stocking up on feta crisps, while the gold wallpaper is being steamed off back in Downing Street. Apparently, they're only going to contact him on urgent matters. If this does not count as an urgent <laughs> matter we've got now, will we require an alien invasion? to get him on the phone. Would you want him on the phone if there were an We could offer him up as a sacrifice. Look, There's he, a lot of him. I was looking at his resignation speech today, mm-hmm. um, and he uh, ended that by saying, I want you to know that from now until the new prime minister is in place, your interests will be served and the government of the country will be carried on. By who? S- <laughs> since then, he has had a big party at Chequers, a wedding reception, a holiday, another holiday, and now he's basically come back just in time to move into his new house. But <laughs> the national interest is being served because he's out of the way. So that Maybe is the national interest. Say, ah, because I'm a million years old, I'm old enough to remember 1978. Uh, I am not. You're not, but I am. (laughs) When there was outrage when Jim Callaghan didn't come back home to manage a load of strikes and the famous crisis, what crisis headline. Um, uh, You know, this is all happening at the same time Liz Truss is calling British workers lazy. (laughs) Would would that press tolerate this from any other prime minister? Boris Johnson rattling around. From any other public official, I don't think they would tolerate. Or indeed what Truss said. Mm. Can you imagine anyone even... (laughs) vaguely connected to the Labour Party, like Starmer's second cousin, twice removed, yes, being recorded saying Brits are lazy. Dan Hodges would be writing about it for, for fucking months. Stop talking Britain down. <laughs> no, seriously. Stop thinking about talking Britain down. It'd be a Daily Mail front page it for would. 10 days. It absolutely would. Arthur Snell is a former diplomat, host of Doomsday Watch and author of the new book, How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Have you come far? Uh, well, no, today I'm actually back at home in Gloucestershire. Right. Um, it's been a mixed week for Trump haters. Uh, there's been the Mar-a-Lago raid continuing to unfold, of course. The FBI uh, want to keep the affidavit under wraps because they think it might cause irreparable damage to its investigation. And they've confiscated Trump's swatch of passports. But on the downside, Liz Cheney lost her primary to a Trump sycophant. So, you know, what do you think the FBI has on Trump at this stage? Well, I think there may be just a simple thing, a whole stash of top secret documents, which you don't get to take home, even if you're a former president. And (laughs) you don't have to be talking about sort of age and memories. You don't have to be that old to remember when the possibility that 
Hillary Clinton had a private email server was a subject of about 25 different uh, investigations by the Republican yes. Party. So mm. presumably a safe load of top secret intelligence documents would be a, a subject of a whole load of investigations by the same Republican Party, or maybe not. But the thing is, you can hack into a, uh, an email server, Arthur, but you can't hack into Donald Trump's toilet, which is where the papers were stored. <laughs> That's true. So in, in, enemies in, were... in special secure bite-sized uh, morsels, yeah, indeed. Well, the S-Bend stands for security bend, I understand. I'm reminded uh, of an American lawyer's old aphorism that says, if the facts are with you, pound the facts. If the law is with you, pound the law. If neither is with you, pound the table. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems to me there's an awful lot of table pounding coming from the Republicans at the moment. So they must be worried. Yes, if you were a fly on the wall, you wouldn't be a fly on the wall for long, would you? Um, Our guest this week is a former diary writer for The Telegraph who's been on a bit of a journey. He's now a columnist and theatre critic for The New European and his play Bloody Difficult Women a dramatisation of the Brexit years starring two of its most famous players, Theresa May and Gina Miller, is now on at the Edinburgh Fringe. Tim Walker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Um, So we're going to talk in detail about the play and also your own experiences of being at the Telegraph with our our current absentee Prime Minister back in the good old days when he could make up anything and get away with it. Um, But somebody who's been really back in focus strangely this week is Gordon Brown. He's been offering his own solutions to the cost of living crisis, where some people think Keir Starmer should have been ahead of that. You know, Ian Duncan Smith has blamed Brown's ruinous treasury orthodoxy, he says, on ruining Britain and given us a decade of low inflation and strong job figures. Do you think Gordon Brown gets his due as Prime Minister? He's going to be a recurring character on this podcast this week. I mean, when I was at The Telegraph, you know, week in, week out, day after day on the column I did called Mandrake, we'd kind of be attacking Gordon Brown. On every paper review I did, I was always attacking Gordon Brown when he was Prime Minister. I have to say now, on so many issues, I find myself agreeing with him. I see a decency in him that I don't see in other politicians. I think he was absolutely right. To, to intervene in the energy, the cost of living crisis that we're about to to see. I think he was right, of course, going back to the, to the day on the banking crisis. He was right about Afghanistan and the humanitarian crisis that we're going to face there. And he was right, too, about COVID. You know, it, it was crazy that we in the West stockpiled uh, vaccines and we didn't share it with other countries because it, in- it increased the spread of the illness. Mm. I think he's a very sensible, very nice guy. And funnily enough, towards the end of his time as prime minister, there was a fair well do for somebody at the Treasury. I can't remember who, and I remember going along and suddenly seeing a Gordon Brown I'd never seen on the television or, or in the media. He was charming, he was kind, he went up to everybody, even went up to me and said hello. And I think he is a, a fundamentally very decent man. And I think on the big issues, he's been right. So I feel very bad about attacking him. And I think it, it's a shame in a way that he's not prime minister because Starmer should have been saying what he was saying about the the cost of living crisis a lot earlier. In a way, Gordon Brown seems to be essentially the, the last prime minister, but four seems to be actually leading the country in a way. Yeah, his reputation is being rehabilitated before our very eyes. Uh, This week on the show, Labour lay out their plans to help fight the cost of living crisis. We talk about the fallout from the attempt on Salmon Rusty's life. And Tim is going to be telling us about that journey from Telegraph to the bosom of Romaniacs like us and how he put Gina and Teresa on the stage. But first, a quick message from Alex. The clock is ticking down to our final Leicester Square Theatre show of the year on Wednesday, 14th of September, and tickets are selling fast. Smart listeners should start 
panic buying them and storing them in the emergency cupboard with a precious sunflower oil and the last tin of tomatoes in Britain. On a very special night, Ian, Dorian, Ros and I will hit the stage running and keep running far, far from Downing Street. Tickets are available now at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com and there's a special four for the price of three deal too. Go to LeicesterSquareTheatre.com and if you're a Patreon supporter, you get a special discount too. Search Patreon Oh God, what now to find out how to support us and keep us podding along. We'll see you there. First up, the cost of living crisis is biting ever harder with poorest households, who spend more on food and fuel, of course, facing a staggering 18% inflation compared to the already eye-watering 10.1% that the whole country is suffering. The ONS has just reported the biggest drop in pay since records began. Keir Starmer has come out swinging with a plan to freeze the energy price cap at just under £2,000 this winter to be funded in part by a further £8 billion windfall tax on energy companies. Meanwhile, Prime Ministerial Cert Liz Truss has described tax cuts as the fix and targeted help has handouts. Tory peer and ASDA chairman Stuart Rose has demanded that the government enact exactly those handouts and he attacked Sajid Javid for saying he was waiting for more facts over the crisis. <laughs> what more facts is he waiting for? Says Stuart Rose. So Alex, Starmer's plan on the freeze. Uh, is he right? Could it work? Okay, so indulge me. Can I start with two quick general points? First point, the reason people like me have been going on about the dangers of stagflation for nearly a year now, you will know from this show, Mm -hmm. is that it's a real bastard to deal with. Most things you do to combat stagnation, feed inflation, and vice versa. So this is the first thing to note. There are no perfect solutions. All of them have their upsides, and all of them have their downsides. The second point is this. Energy is not a luxury. It's not an optional extra. It's an essential. Someone will pay for it, and it will largely be funded by borrowing. The question is, should that be private debt piled disproportionately on the poorest people and the smallest businesses, or should it be public debt created at much better rates and distributed in a more equitable way? That is the choice. So in those terms, I think Starmer's is a great plan for two reasons. The first is that it's the only serious costed plan that recognizes the actual magnitude of the problem ahead. And the second is that, unlike tax cuts, it's anti-inflationary. And it's the only plan around at the moment that Mm. is anti-inflationary. So show me another show in town and I might go and see it. Mm. But his is the only one at the moment. Um, his plan is costed at £29 billion. The TUC says nationalisation would cost about a tenth of that. Mm. And Gordon Brown, him again, thinks it could be done temporarily. I mean, you have your issues with nationalisation on this issue in particular, on this issue specifically. Uh, you know, is there a middle way? I mean, we can't just do what, you know, we can't do what happened with the trains and wait for the franchises to expire because there aren't any franchises. I mean, there's no reason to do uh, what we did with the trains because uh, the government has taken over one Mm -hmm. of the electricity providers at the moment. Um, Yeah. And every time one of them goes bust, they redistribute their customers to other providers when they could have been taking them into the one that they're controlling at the moment. They could make Bulb, for example, in which they have a controlling interest, Uh, offer a social tariff to people who are, let's say, above a certain level of universal credit. So let's not use the big scary words. 
what we're talking about is introducing a, a state-backed competitor into this market that can offer uh, slightly subsidized rates to the poorest, that can stimulate competition in that market and absorb customers of, of companies that go bust. I mean, that's not a... Stop calling it nationalization, start calling it safe well, harbor. No, I mean, yeah. you know, in the, in the language of that think tank, they've costed Starmer, Starmer's plan of 29 billion is exactly what I was talking about before. Mm. It's not like this 29 billion won't be paid by someone mm -hmm. <laughs> but for Starmer's pla plan. Starmer yeah. is just talking about how to distribute this massive cost that's coming slightly mm. more equitably. Oh. He's not creating some, some kind of cost. Also, side benefit of the entire COVID mess, 29 billion quid doesn't sound like that much anymore. <laughs> that sounds true. kind of chump change. Do, do, you think, um, do you think Starmer's Labour are making enough headway on the cost of living? And the left are constantly berating them for inaction. Trust just attacks specific help, the handouts, as good and brown economics. Everybody take a drink. Mm. Don't, <laughs> don't threaten me with a good time. It, are are, are Labour making enough headway, headway on cost of living finally? No, the answer is they're not. But I hope they will be emboldened by the last week because it proves that clear, simple, digestible, brave, well-argued well policies will do them a lot of good um, out there in the country. Arthur, do you think people get just where the energy price rise comes from? You know, the, com the company you pay your bills to isn't giving you the gas. It's just speculating on a price from a wholesaler. Yeah, but to be fair, if, if that's a legitimate way to start this answer... Uh, the gas price has gone through the roof. So when, when the invasion happened, there was a huge spike in the gas price. And then it dropped right back down. And a lot of people, I think, quite legitimately said, well, hang on, you know, if the price has gone back down, why are we still being done over? But the price has shot back, well, no shot, it's climbed back up. And it's just that it's, it's on a very steep upward trajectory and continuing. But also, and this I think is a really important thing that people are not very familiar with, gas storage in this country, and of course, gas is still really significant, uh, we've got about eight terawatt hours, which is like eight huge blobs of gas, compared to Italy that has 70, Germany has 64, France has 26, the Netherlands has 30. The point is, we just don't have much stored. So that means you're, you have much less of a reserve to dip into. So whilst we may not be as gas dependent as some countries, and we're not dependent on Russian gas, we're still dependent on gas, and the general price of gas has shot up. So I think, you know, there are some real 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 issues there which uh obviously these companies are going to be making money but it's it's not like uh that these are kind of fake costs these are there in in the real market if only we hadn't converted our gasometers to luxury flats we'd be well yeah we? then may, maybe that would have been a better idea I mean, it's pretty clear that Putin wants to use the gas supply to put the screws on the West into the winter. Zelensky's just said Russia is waging a gas war against Europe. How you know you've just described how Britain is is more susceptible to this than perhaps others, but Germany, while it may have large reserves, is still more susceptible, isn't it, because of yeah. Its own so, so I suppose choices. there's price susceptibility and supply. We're susceptible on price. Uh, but luckily, being at the far west of Europe, we get gas from Norway. We get gas across the Atlantic from North America, from countries like Trinidad, a country I know well. Um, that we're, we're lucky. Getting gas from Trinidad. Yeah, getting, Trinidad, this. believe it or not, is one of the major suppliers of gas to this country. Um, right. So there you go. Not just sun, sea, and sand. Yeah. So, <laughs> so so gas can come to us because of our Atlantic geography more easily than it gets to Germany. Mm. And for a long time, Germany hasn't even had a 
a means of bringing liquefied natural gas on shore, whereas we have that in, in Wales. So, so we, we've got that advantage, but then we have this disadvantage on storage and other issues. But Putin, you know, that basically you're watching a race against time. The currently, one of the things that's ongoing is an attempt to build a connector that comes up from Spain and Portugal, because they also, of course, have the Atlantic coast, Mm-hmm. that can then bring gas up through Europe, through France, and on to Germany, and so on. So there are various projects that people are trying to complete in, in double-quick time against what is going to be a really hard winter. And I know everyone keeps saying it's going to be a really hard winter, but I think you know none of us knows until we've lived through it quite what it's going to be like. Sadiq Khan is warning of the potential of rising violence you know, beyond civil disobedience, you know, criminal violence as the cost of living crisis continues. You know, is he right, do you think? I mean, do do people in the UK riot over the the price of bread and the price of heat in the bedroom? Uh, Well, maybe they will soon. I mean, you know, I I think it's true that crime often increases in during a recession for, for all the sad reasons that that might be the case. You hear so many stories now of how the cost of living is driving people into conditions that you don't associate with a kind of wealthy country certainly one of the world's wealthiest countries people who are who feed their children but not themselves and then live off the leftovers from their kids plates you know this is happening in britain in the 21st century um so i i think it's really desperate and i do think there's this kind of weird phony war where everyone's talking about it but no one is really changing the actual way they live but i just wonder whether come November, December, particularly if Liz Truss is going to be as hopeless as she seems determined to be about it. Uh, You know, I think it's going to, the strains, the social strains, I think are going to be intense. Tim, do you think it's likely that uh, whichever of the leader candidates wins, cough, cough, uh, that she might steal Starmer's idea for a cap? I mean, they already pinched the windfall tax. I I don't know. All I know is I think it would be very useful if somebody were to kind of politely ask Dido Harding if we could have our 37 billion back, uh, <laughs> which we still don't really know what she did with. And I, I mean, the moment I heard Boris Johnson saying there would not be power cuts this winter, and he said it several months ago, I went out <laughs> and bought candles. Although I look incredibly youthful and, and, and young, I actually did live through the 70s. And I remember the, the candles that we all had to get. And it was a pretty grim time. I think the problem is really, and we're do- talking really to a large extent about sort of Daily Mail readers and people who are deciding the, f- the future of our, our country, the Tory, Tory members, is that they're just thinking to themselves, well, it's awfully hot at the moment. We don't need the heating on. And I think the fact it's happening during a heat wave that we're getting these warnings from people like Gordon Brown, I think isn't really giving it traction. I think we're an amazingly unimaginative country these days, sadly. And I think we're all thinking <laughs> the last thing we want to do is turn the heating on. But I think it'll be a terribly tough winter. And again, I think it'll shock us. And I can see us fighting over candles in the supermarkets in the way that we did loo rolls. Candles will be the, the new must-have accessory if, of course, we can see our way to actually find Finding them in the supermarkets. <laughs> I'm logging on to Amazon as we speak. Oh, here we go. Speculating on candles. Panic buying. Candle futures. Yeah. Yeah. Cat candle spear of Alexandreo. Um, Tim, I mean, you know, you talk you mentioned there the audience for this this rhetoric. What does the closed mind approach of the leadership contest tell us about where the Tory party has got to now? It's like there's only one issue to talk about, and it's tax. Well, it's it's tragic. I mean, if I, you know, if I was either leadership candidate or as advising them on PR, I, you know, I tell them to talk to sort of unlikely people, you know, like the union leaders that we're hearing so much from, to debate with them, to get out, to do unexpected 
unexpected things. God only knows, maybe even go to the theatre, see a play like Bloody Difficult Women at the Edinburgh Fringe. Not that I'm going to ruth- <laughs> ruthlessly plug my play before I already should. But they should do unexpected things and show the, the Tory members that they could actually win the next election. And they're not going to do that by just talking in the small, closed, onanistic little world that they're talking to. But isn't that actually the orthodoxy that you're dealing with? Because the core of the Tory party that we've got now genuinely believes that returning to this kind of uh, cargo cult folk memory of what Thatcherism is, is the way to win the next general election. You just replay 1979 always and it will always succeed. Isn't that what we're dealing with? An empty engine room. I mean, what's so tragic is that you never hear any of the leadership candidates or or anyone in the Conservative Party anymore talking about that phrase they used to love, the will of the people. You don't even see them anymore posing with Union (laughs) Jacks. It's extraordinary how how, the the goalposts keep changing. And you said earlier on, and by the way, you said I was on a journey since the Telegraph. And Alistair Campbell said the same thing. He said, I've seen the light. May I say, I worked with (laughs) Boris Johnson. I knew what he was like. And from the very beginning, I knew it would be a catastrophe. for me, the, the past six, seven years of my life has like been like getting on to the Titanic, knowing precisely where the iceberg was, <laughs> pointing it out politely to the captain and my fellow passengers and nobody taking any notice of me. So you appreciate I'm a somewhat exasperated, if not Victor Meldrew type man these days. But the Titanic you got on, when you say there's an iceberg over there, the captain's going to say marvellous for gin and tonic. That's what's going to happen on that particular Titanic. I mean, Boris Johnson was a shit when I worked with him. He's a shit now. He will always be a shit. A shit is a shit is a shit. I mean, nothing, nobody should be surprised by this. And all those journalists like Peter Oborn, who bigged him up, you know, ahead of the uh, leadership campaign at the time and said, uh, I recall, he said, brilliant himself, he will want to surround himself with brilliant people. Every time I see Peter, I say that. And we we all (laughs) knew what he was like. It it should not come as a shock to anybody. In fairness, Peter has been on a bit of a journey himself. He has, yes. I want to ask you about this language of handouts because it, it kind of came out of Liz Truss's mouth almost as like a kind of Thatcher Tourette's, you know, like immediate response. We don't believe in handouts. What does this language of choosing that word, what does it say about kind of the attitude that's ingrained within Liz Truss? Because what we seem to be seeing is the only thing that's, that's consistent about it is that she's incredibly rigid in her belief. I mean, they, they do talk in a rather strange language. And I heard some of them at The Telegraph, you know, in the sort of early days of listening to people like Boris Johnson and Daniel Hannan. They live in a very cruel, very hard, hard world. And don't forget, during the early days of the pandemic, you know, they were talking to each other about bodies piling high. They, they, they do seem to, unfortunately, be talking only to multi-billionaires, uh, people of extraordinary wealth, you know, the non-doms, the newspaper owners and people mm. like that. Mm. That seems to be all they really care about. And if people like, you know, you and me drop down dead, as indeed we saw during COVID, they're not that bothered. They really couldn't care less. So we're, we're talking about a very odd group of people who lack as far as I can see it, basic humanity. And I mean, I remember saying once to Boris Johnson in the office when he was going off on one of these sort of these sort of tirades against people. I think, by the way, the thing with Boris looking back at him and people like Charles Moore, and, and you look at the Telegraph, they're always going on about the TV series from the 1980s, I think, Brideshead Revisited. They genuinely believe that they should live in a world of big country houses 
and I, and I remember saying to Boris, it's fine, you know, I'm sure, you know, we could all do very well in this situation and I'd be living in Belgravia and I'd have a huge Maserati parked outside. But what is the point of it if on the way from my luxury house in Belgravia to the Maserati, I'm stabbed to death because society is broken down? There has to be, and this is what they don't really understand, some kind of compromise. They have to accept that there's a need for society, as Mrs. Thatcher maybe was reluctant to see. Nick Cohen wrote, wrote an interesting thing for The Spectator this week where he described the impending triumph of Liz Truss as the triumph of I worked hard and never asked for a handout and, you know, I went to the University of Life and I went to the School of Hard Knocks. Kind of anti-logical, anti-education, anti-expertise, real basic barroom bore stuff. And the, th- the, the one that really stood out today for me was the idea of um, suddenly the male's headline is the enemies are now cyclists and we're going to have license plates for cyclists. What did you think of this particular wheeze? Oh, it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's not on anybody's minds at the moment. I was, I mean, I have quite a, a, a cycle with a rather thin wheel at the back and I was just wondering how you'd actually stick a, a number plate on it. <laughs> and I think, you know, we've got all these cycle names. I know what people will say. I know what I'll say. I'll say, well, I'm, I, I'm not going to use the cycle because suddenly I'm going to have to tax it. I'm going to have to deal with all the admin to do with it. And it'll basically get us back into our, our, our guzzling, gas guzzling cars and so forth. And it... It, it, it's a typical lack of joined up think, thinking. Why have we got all these cycle names if suddenly we're going to not use cycles anymore? I mean, it, the Daily Mail seems to now just be obsessed with somehow continually dropping dead cats on us on the basis that we'll all be looking away while Paul Dacre, its, it's editor-in-chief, picks up his peerage. The Foreign Ministry of Iran says that Salman Rushdie only has himself to blame for being attacked on stage over last weekend. Miraculously, it looks like Rushdie will live, with the sons of Zafar saying on Twitter that while the writer's injuries are life-changing and severe, his defiant sense of humour remains intact. Uh, we can't really add anything to the outrage over this attempted murder of great writer, except great happiness that he survived and hopes for as full a recovery as possible. But instead, we're going to look at the wider context, specifically at Iran, who originated the fatwa even if they weren't directly behind this attack. Arthur, Salman Rushdie had returned to something like a normal life in recent years, but how current was he and the issue of the fatwa in the Islamic world? I don't think it was very current, to be honest. It certainly had a lot of currency at the time. And it was, if you, uh, you know, there, there are plenty of people who can describe their own experience on a path to radicalization for whom the events around the satanic verses and the so-called Rushdie affair was an important moment in in that journey. This is not to justify that. I'm just, you know, there are plenty of case studies. Um, But I think a a lot of people, particularly outside Iran, probably had stopped thinking about Salman Rushdie. And in a weird way, the comparative youth of his attacker uh, was, to me, quite surprising because it, 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 it felt like something that was outside the kind of current mainstream of sort of hardline mm, yes. militant thought. This week marks a year since the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And at the time, uh, we were widely warned that as well as emboldening the Taliban, it would increase the risk of violent Islamism. Have we seen that? I mean, we've the, you know, the, the kind of background hum of events. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if, if, if we can relate it to that. I mean, basically, so the, mm. guy, the guy who did the attack, he had his, um, his sort of nom de guerre. He took this name Mornia, which is a, the name of a very famous Hezbollah commander from Lebanon who was, you know, very, very closely aligned with the Iranian government 
active in Lebanon sort of in the 80s and 90s and so on. So it seems to me that this is a, a rather odd case of a certain individual who had an obsession with certain figures, identified very strongly with this Iranian sort of militant worldview, and that drove him towards Salman Rushdie. Now, I'm saying that's my, just my, my reading of it. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot more that will probably come out in, in the next few days and weeks. An Iranian man was charged last week for an alleged assassination plot against John Bolton, uh, the extremely hawkish former US national security advisor. Bolton said he was embarrassed by the low price on his head. Uh, it was $300,000 and there was a million dollars on the head of Mike Pompeo. Um, it, how, how do things like this relate to some certainly more assertive US actions like the killing of the Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zahawi last month? Well, just just on, on the, the sort of prices on heads, there is a $3 million price on Rushdie's head, which is uh, offered by a, a kind of semi-official Iranian foundation. So this is sort of a bit yeah. like the kind of, you know, Arts and Humanities Council here in the UK. And um, another foundation, another scholarly foundation added another half a million on that bounty only as recently as 2012. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's three and a half million. The, the, it, these sort of things, you know, are they are still there. And and having said about, you know, the Rusty affair is perhaps not at the top of people's minds. I think there, are, you know, it was on on headlines, you know, unpleasant, nasty, crowing headlines on lots of Iranian hardline newspapers the day after the attack. Mm. So it's still there. But going back to Zawahiri, so this was, you know, the Al Qaeda leader. I mean, what what's really interesting? Who was taken out by a missile strike in Kabul? What's really interesting there is. One of the many things we were told after the chaotic retreat from Afghanistan was that, you know, Al-Qaeda wouldn't be allowed back because the Taliban had changed its view and they were going to keep out the terrorists. And although we didn't like the Taliban, it wasn't so bad. Well, the head of Al-Qaeda was literally living in downtown Kabul in the kind of equivalent of Belgravia in a nice big house. So I think we can conclude fairly clearly what's happened to Al-Qaeda since uh, the international departure there. Alex, you knew Salman Rushdie. You, uh, you uh, appeared in a run of Hanif Qureshi's Black Album play, uh, which is set in 1989, the year the fatwa was placed or proclaimed or whatever it was, whatever you do with a fatwa. Uh, what was it like burning the satanic verses on stage every night? It was quite weird. Um, I mean, it was the end of the first part before the interval. Mm. And it was such a complicated technically thing because the book was actually a safe metal box filled with flammable stuff and sort of yes. covered in a in a jacket of the book. And so I had to light it and it was meant to be this exultant moment of religious fervor. And then as soon as the safety curtain went down, I had to tip it into a sort of bucket of sand that appeared mm. my way um, in order to not burn the theater yeah. down. <laughs> that would have been a great so, story for the Iranian news service. So what I'm trying to say is I was so preoccupied with <laughs> the technical aspects of the yeah. scene. I wasn't that uh, engaged with the morality of it. Um, but the night Salman came to see the play it was obviously a very, very strange meeting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the point is that this was a comedy. It was a satire. It was a black comedy on at the National and then on a number one tour for six months. Uh, with no particularly special security measures, with a completely South Asian audience. And to think, 12 years on, would the National put it on today? I'm not mm. sure they would. 
it feels weirdly as if we're going backwards on this issue. Yeah, it really the, does. A lot of talk about the, the sort of the internal sensor, the, mm. uh, the 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 invisible policeman yeah. that tells you not to do the thing that you would the, have done. Yeah, the 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 fucker on your shoulder, my drama teacher used to call it. Um, Brandon O'Neill, world class opportunist, was oh, quick Christ. to use the attack on Rushdie to claim that identity <sighs> politics has turned violent. All identity politics, it's all the same, apparently. Um, you know, it, can you really equate a mob being nasty to you on Twitter to the religious leader of a country calling for somebody's death? Do you know, I have read this argument several times now and in better publications and from better heads than Brendan O'Neill's souvenir Easter Island bin. Um, <laughs> but I still don't quite understand it. I've tried to strip it down to understand what is it they're saying. First of all, it, it involves an ill-defined group of, of the woke or Western liberals. Mm. Might as well be you people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and secondly, they're accusing those people of being complicit for not having been a little bit more fashy towards... Um, you know, religious people when all this was kicking off because that would have avoided, apparently, the fascism now coming out of these extreme religious circles. And I just don't get it. I just don't understand that. What are they saying? Are they saying that if we had allowed th uh, the more racist Western voices a bit more latitude, they would have somehow counteracted those extreme voices coming out of Islam. I don't understand how essentially a movement that says be more considerate, consider other people's culture, be polite, don't hurt someone else's feelings for nothing. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how that is responsible for a sort of wave of violence. And I don't understand either how uh, saying be more considerate, be more, uh, be more polite rules out your right to write an offensive book which will only be read by people who've chosen to read it. Oh, it you doesn't. Know, of, course, of course it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, that's not that's not even up for grabs. And, yeah. and yes, I, I recognise that back at the time, the reaction of some intellectuals in this country was rather more equivocal yeah. than it should have been. But it wasn't by any means the, you know, everyone... <laughs> There were some voices that were slightly more equivocal than they could have been. But, you know, those voices, Shirley Williams has nothing to fucking do with me today, yeah. you know, 30 years later. Yeah. I don't understand how I am suddenly in the same camp and being accused of complicity with a with a Ayatollah. I don't get that connection. I think it's only because people... Well, my faith wants to put you... Yeah, exactly. It's a spurious connection. Yeah. That's the only logical yeah. answer. Tim, were you... Were you, uh, you know, this this has taken place during your working life. Did you have any connection with the, with the Titanic versus story, working for papers? I remember it vividly. Uh, I remember thinking it was a unique and exceptional occasion. But then I, I fast forward to recent years. And I remember somebody putting up £5,000. Uh, it was a Viscount, as I recall, to have Gina Miller run down... Uh, mm. 
And in terms of the wider point about freedom of expression, I mean, I was watching a play at the National Theatre the other day all about the assassination of Gandhi. And suddenly in the middle of it, there was a little totally uncontemporaneous line about how awful Brexit was. And I did, I mean, nobody laughed. Everybody in the audience thought, if this is really the most you can actually say about what's happening in our country at the moment, this is pathetic. You know, one remembers David Hare and those angry state of the nation plays he used to do. I think of Arthur Miller during the time of McCarthy. Mm. Mm -hmm. daring to take it on in the crucible directly at great risk to himself. And then I listened to playwrights like James Graham saying, oh, well, you know, I did Brexit, the uncivil war, but I needed to put both sides of the story. That is the way a journalist thinks. You know, playwrights and theatre should be angry. They should talk to our times. Graham, I might add, then did a play about Rupert Murdoch called Inc. that was so critical of Rupert Murdoch that vast swathes of the audience were Murdoch executives that Rebecca Brooks had bought tickets for. And then he starts writing freelance pieces for the Sunday Times. I think we need to have a point of view and I think we need to be on the side of right unequivocally. And I think it's sad and tragic that theatre and so many people who we rely upon, not least, by the way, our newspapers too, that should be calling out evil and not doing so. It's been interesting to me to see uh, on the Rushdie thing, a lot of the papers who are now quite rightly, absolutely rightly outraged by the attack on him, as everybody should be, were in the past not quite so friendly. In 2017, the Mail were calling Rushdie the not-much-loved novelist who has once more been sounding off about Britain's failings because Rushdie didn't like Brexit. Uh, in 2008, in the Mail, A.N. Wilson attacked him for not showing sufficient gratitude to Britain. You know, that old chestnut as if he's not really properly British and he is supposed to be grateful for basic law enforcement provision. Um you know, the the way that it's being reported now, to try and connect it to the endless war on woke, does that actually work for Mail, Telegraph and Express readers? I fear to a large extent it probably does. I mean, the sad thing is, is that I suppose going back to the time when Salman Rushdie first wrote the satanic verses, and there was the fact actually, we didn't think that freedom of expression would be endangered in our own country. And funny enough, I remember doing an interview with Arthur Miller towards the end of his life, and I remember saying to him, you know, you'll never have to write a play like The Crucible again. I'll never have to write a play like you have written. And, you know, he kind of looked up to the, to the heavens, and he said it's when countries become complacent, it's when they start taking things for granted. Young man, he said, because I was young then. Mm. He said, that's when you're at the greatest risk of losing it. And I think our problem in our country, and maybe the whole of the West, you could say this, is that we've been unbelievably complacent. Mm. Yeah, you absolutely could write the, the crucible again, couldn't you? I mean, the, the number of transgressions for which you could be called out by people on the right, left, and even the centre are now, you know, much more, uh, more wide and varied than in the 1950s when it was only, hey, you're a communist. And, and there is a kind of McCarthyism now. I mean, I I could talk to you about any number of very fine journalists that I know who, for one reason or another, you're not seeing on the television, who are not appearing in newspapers. And, you know, a lot of them sort of turn to the bottle. A lot of them just disappear. These are, these are great voices that we've had lost to our country. And I think it's terribly sad. And also, by the way, there's a much greater tolerance in our newspapers. I mean, I worked at the Daily Mail up until the millennium. And when I worked there, Roy Hattersley had a desk not far from mine. He wrote a column for the paper. Newspapers tolerated other other voices. I mean, the mm, Guardian mm. used to have right-wing voices that, uh, as the, the male had left-wing voices. But now suddenly we will become obsessive. 
As you've been hearing, uh, Tim Walker used to write for the Telegraph Diary, amongst other things. He now has moved across the political spectrum somewhat around Brexit. Now he writes for the New European and his play Bloody Difficult Women, dramatising the court case of ultra-remainer and hero of this podcast, Gina Miller, against Theresa May's government. The court case that forced the government to put Article 50 to a vote is now on at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, Tim, you're supposed to get more right-wing as you get older. What happened? Well, I think reality happened. I think I have not changed. I think, you know, the newspapers I worked on, the politicians uh, have changed dramatically. I mean, what happened to people like Ken Clark and Michael Heseltine? The, the play, to some extent, is really the, the story of the end of a love affair. I mean, Gina Miller was a mate of mine. I'd known her for about 10 years before the uh, Article 50 cases that she, she brought against uh, Theresa May. And I was kind of shocked. I, I, you know, somebody that I knew very well, who I, who I loved actually, who I was very, very close to and still am, was suddenly getting death threats. Was suddenly, you know, figuring in Daily Mail headlines that they were. They actually wrote that newspaper that uh, she should be burned at the stake like Joan of Arc, but that would be too good for her. And I, that's a quote. Mm. And I started to think. And I've had lunches with journalists. I had lunch with a guy called Tony Gallagher, who went on to edit The Sun. He was my editor at The Telegraph. And I said to him, why did we get into journalism? And clearly, I believe most of us of my generation, we got in because we'd seen films like All the President's Men. We were struck by the glamour and excitement mm. of the, you know, the Washington Post breaking the Watergate story. I think most of us got into it for the very best of reasons. And I'm not quite sure what has really happened to an entire generation of journalists. I think to a Paul Dacre, the, the editor of the Daily Mail at the time that it was running all these attacks on Gina Miller and, and going on about the enemies of the people and so forth. I, I wonder what's happened to him. I mean, I, 10 years ago, I'd have told you that he was up there with Ben Bradley, the editor of the Washington Post, Harry Evans, as a very important and influential newspaper man. Now, I, I, I don't I dread to think how he'll be remembered. I think he's sort of tarnished his legacy. You should not get so close to governments. And I think journalists have made this terrible mistake of getting into bed with possibly the most useless, incompetent and damaging government I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Well, you've told us what it's like to work with the head of the most useless, incompetent and damaging government a a little bit earlier. Um, Do you think that he is likely to return to that cosy job writing columns for The Telegraph? Well, I've, I read in The Guardian that he might be heading off to the Daily Mail. Uh, I, I would personally be very reluctant, uh, if I was an editor or a proprietor, to have him on any paper, because I think he is toxic. I think, you know, the fact that he couldn't, he can never seem to show his face in public anymore without being booed. I think the more the reality of what he has done to our country starts to, to, to sink in, the more hated he will become. And I suspect we will be paying as taxpayers for massively enhanced security for him because people will not forgive and forget he made massive promises that have now been broken he was always a very unpleasant man I always remember he was the kind of man who would be you know first out of a lift we saw the picture of him you know getting off the plane leaving the two women including his wife to to carry all the bags and everything he's always been a sort of effortlessly selfish human being I mean I suppose in my career and probably most of our careers I mean I, I suppose if I sucked up to anybody on a paper, I'd suck up to an editor. He made the he made the point of, of sucking up to proprietors. He was always in that kind of billionaire set. First it was Conrad Black, then it was the Barclay brothers. And I think mm. he just shows what what you can, how far you can go in your life if you're a totally unscrupulous toady with actually nothing else to offer. 
So you, you left the Telegraph about, I think, three or four years before Brexit itself. Had there been a moment where you started to feel like you were in the wrong place? Afterwards, the literary agent, Ed Victor, said, would you like to do a book about the Barclay brothers? And I thought, well, you know, a bit of money in it. Why not? And, I, and, and he said to me, of course, they're, they're very secretive and they almost certainly won't see you. Anyway, literally by return of post, David Barclay, one of the, the twins who ran the paper at the time, now dead, he immediately got in touch and said, come over to the Ritz Hotel and, and have, have a cup of tea with me. This was about one of about 20 meetings that we had. And he spent most of the time slagging off his brother, Frederick, who he thought was hopeless. And it now turns out how much they hated each other. But, but it was interesting. He was taking calls from people like Boris Johnson. He was always saying, hi, Boris, you know, and it was clear what was going on quite early. Then he said something which made my blood run cold. And I remember he started to talk about Europe. And he said, I don't know whether you've read the Old Testament prophecy of... um, who was it now? I can't remember now. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. He started going on about Nebuchadnezzar. He said, it's clear, if you read that story, Tim, that you, the, the European Union isn't going to work. It's all going to, to, to disintegrate appallingly. And I was thinking, this man, who is my proprietor, he was for about you know 10 years, he's as mad as a snake. And I found it very <laughs> unsettling. I mean, he was a very odd and unprepossessing man. And once I went there with a mate of mine uh, from, from uh, my newspaper days, and he came out. Uh, from a sort of little side room said hello and the mate I was with gave him his coat and I said Nigel he's not the guy who does the coats he you know he used to be our proprietor <laughs> but he was such an unprepossessing and rather unimpressive man and I think this is the hallmark of all these Brexiteers they're incredibly unimpressive people but when I worked there I remember doing a kind of uh, recommendations for honours which was a way we filled up the column over Christmas and I remember including Gina Miller in it I mean so the Telegraph has actually recommended Gina Miller for a peerage, which is kind of ironic. And I remember at meetings, we had editorial meetings, and there's a guy called Robert Colville, who now works, I think, for the Sunday Times. And I remember him saying, and Tony Gallagher was there, the editor, and I remember we talked about UKIP. I remember Robert saying, oh, yes, the, the Stop the World, I Want to Get Off party. And, <laughs> you know, none of us thought it was sort of odd. And I used to attack, I think I attacked Nigel Farage, I can't really remember in Mandrake. But we all regarded those people as kind of jokes. And Daniel Hannan was a sort of weird eccentric in the office and Johnson. But looking back, I was like some sort of oblivious party boy in Berlin in sort of the early 1930s who had no idea that these funny, <laughs> funny people in suits around him were about to take over the, the world. Uh, yeah. Um, the play, uh, it was actually Ken Clark who gave Theresa May the title Bloody Difficult Woman. Uh, and obviously you've kind of, you've looked at that story from numerous angles. We followed it live from every twist and turn from 2016 onwards. There's a tendency now to look at Theresa May a little bit more kindly because of the terrible person who followed her and the still more terrible person who'll follow him. Have we got the have we got the rosy glasses on here? I mean, she was the architect of the hostile environment. She was the one who, uh, you know, drove Brexit forward without any kind of reference to reality. Are we being too kind to her? I think the key quote which Theresa May came out with, and I include this in the play, was when she said, when I heard the result of the EU referendum, I cried. I knew the effect it would have on the most vulnerable. So clearly she knew exactly what was going to happen and what this meant. And she knew how unscrupulous all the people who were pushing for it actually were and what their real agendas were. I think her tragedy was that really, and again, I get into this in the play, when she was in her 20s, when she was very young, first of all, she lost her father in, in a terrible road accident. And then her mother immediately 
immediately after that, uh, she, she then lost. And I think at that point, all she had in her life were the, the Tory party, her husband, Philip, because, uh, of course, there were no children. And I think she became obsessive about the Tory party. The party had to be first. It was the main grounding she had in her life. And I think when she took office, on the one hand, she had this terrible dilemma, knowing what Brexit would actually do to the country. But also, she knew she had to do what her party wanted her to do, because her party was such a big deal. And in a way, it shows the problem we have, that people are putting the party all the time before the country. And I think she she represents that. But I think she's ultimately a tragic figure. And I think really, all we should really have for her is... I don't think anger, but I think we should pity her because of, she is a, uh, the product of her background. Uh, you said you had to rewrite the final scene of the play a hundred times over without spoiling it. Can you tell us why? Well, there were there were little things, small li- lines in it, like, you know, Gina Miller. And I, I made up this meeting between Gina Miller and Theresa May at the end where they have this kind of catharsis. And Gina Miller at one point says, you know, you backed him. You stood up and applauded you lot last month. And Theresa May said, well, I certainly didn't, because we all remember that image of her sitting there on a seat and then reluctantly standing up, but refusing to clap. As I say, I think the tragedy with May is that she knew exactly what was happening around her. Oddly enough, I was very close to Fiona Cunningham or Fiona Hill, who was one of the sort of key aides around her. And I knew her quite well. And I do remember texting her after May became prime minister. And I said, what she needs to do is go on television, a live broadcast to the nation with all the charts, all the figures, all the sort of graphs behind her, and actually spell out what it will actually mean, Brexit. And then to say, you know, you make the decision. Do you really want to go ahead with this? Fiona wasn't having that. She felt that they had to plough on. I I think Theresa's maxim was never underestimate the power of inertia. And I think she tried to kick the can down the road for as long as she can. But it all ended in tears. It ended disastrously. Her career, essentially, like so many careers and lives and and prospects, were completely wrecked by Boris Johnson. Mm. (laughs) Um, I noticed you tweeting last week, there are no good Tories left. Um, Do you think of yourself as part of the extended, broader, conservative cinematic universe or not at all? Oh, I don't, I don't know whether, I'm, uh, whether I said that exactly. I think there were still some decent old-fashioned One Nation Tories, but none of them are unfortunately in the Tory party. You know, I think of people well, like it, yeah. Dominic, <laughs> Dominic Grieve, you know, Ken Clark, Heseltine, people like that who are all pariahs now. I mean, what I enjoy talking why I enjoy talking to you today, and, and and by the way, why I've loved being up in Edinburgh to talk about the play, is that we can actually talk about Brexit. We can talk about what's happening in mm, our politics. Mm. No mainstream TV channel would have me on. I t- uh, you know, I tell you that for yeah. free. Uh, and, and it's almost like it's some awful family <laughs> secret. It's like sort of down here, it's like talking about the day granny was done for shoplifting. We're just not allowed ever to talk about it. And if we do, everybody <laughs> frowns at us. It's a tragedy. You know what it really. is? You know what it is? We've been cancelled. That's what happened. We've been cancelled for talking about Brexit. All of us in, in the uh, in this 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 setup here. So, imagine yourself in two years' time. What what play will you be writing about the Truss years? Both of them. God, I think it'll probably be the Boris Strikes Back or something in a worst case scenario. Um, mm. It's it's. I think it was an emotionally draining uh, experience to do this. I don't particularly want to write another political 
play. I, I, I wonder, to be perfectly honest, given all the cancelling and the censorship that's going on. And, you know, we got legal letters from Paul Dacre, the Daily Mail editor, demanding mm-hmm. to see the script even before we, we, we went on. Uh, and we had to take a lot of legal advice. I, to be honest, I wonder if it's even going to be possible the way things are going in our country. I remember Gina Miller said to me at the beginning of all of this, she said, Tim, we'll all end in, up in prison at some point. And I remember laughing. I, I don't think I'd laugh quite so loudly now if you were to say the same thing. I think we're, we're heading into very dangerous territory. Well, go and watch it while you can. Bloody Difficult Women is on at the Assembly Rooms in Edinburgh until August the 28th. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Alex, what is your Under the Radar story? Can I be allowed two if I make them very make quick? Make them quick. Okay. So the first one is that uh, as the European Union prepares to implement the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, which are seen as quite revolutionary in terms of regulation of online markets, it is opening an outpost in San Francisco, which insiders basically see as a Silicon Valley embassy. That's how my uh, contact the commission described it to me. I think that's a really interesting development that you have all these companies that are now so huge, meta, Google, um, Amazon, you know, they're so giant um, and so supranational Mm. that the EU is really the first country that's opening a direct diplomatic dialogue with them effectively. Mm. Uh, Really interesting. The second one, which I want to include, because it broke just before we started recording, and I just think it's emblematic of the deplorable fucking state of this country. So on the 11th of August, we requested in the EU, in the EU agreed to a one month extension to respond to the legal action they're taking on the trade deal. Yesterday, five days later, Truss used her caretaker foreign secretary position when she's not meant to be doing any massive policy decisions to file a legal action against the EU for them breaking the trade agreement. Um, and I just think it's extraordinary. It's just another piece of EU goodwill that's been rewarded with absolute scorn, convention-breaking, yeah. international reputation-ruining bollocks. Arthur, how about you? Well, I wanted to talk about Sri Lanka, which I wouldn't say is under the radar in the general sense that people have probably been aware of the basic collapse of that country. And, and it's a... It's a sort of emblematic story of what's happening to the global economy in 2022, that the, the country is sort of is literally bankrupt. It, it barely has a functioning government. But the, the latest development is uh, the presence of a huge Chinese Navy intelligence gathering ship that arrived in one of Sri Lanka's ports. And of course, just think about the geography. You're right next to India. China and India are the two great Asian rising powers, very suspicious of each other, always constantly uh, seeking uh, relative advantage. And what you're seeing is China taking an opportunity. It, it had historic connections with Sri Lanka, but at a moment when Sri Lanka is is at its weakest in decades, using this opportunity to bring in a ship that it would probably never have done in, in previous years. And that ship will be hoovering up all kinds of sensitive information out of India. Tim, how about you? What's your under the radar story? 
Well, this is definitely a story that when it's in the new European print edition tomorrow, I don't think it'll be on the on the paper review on the Today programme. But I, I, I note with interest that nobody who got close to Boris Johnson, who championed him in newspapers, seems to come out of it badly. And I noticed that Sarah Sands, who used to be the editor of the Today programme when it was accused of being very pro-Brexit and very pro pro Boris, who was also editor of the Evening Standard when she backed him as mayor of London. She just landed a, a, a directorship, a £70,000 a year directorship uh, on the board of the house building company Barclay, which happens to have very close conservative links. And its, it's late boss was a great mate of Boris Johnson. And I must say, when she was briefly my editor on the Sunday Telegraph, I do not remember her having any great aptitude for house building or any great interest in it. But, <laughs> but she's also advised Rishi Sunak's heiress wife uh, during her, her, the, the media storm over her non-dom status. She's also a partner at Hawthorne as Advisors, an outfit co-founded by Ben Elliott, the vice chairman of the Tory party, on an undisclosed salary. And the day Boris Johnson resigned, as if all that wasn't enough, he appointed her as a trustee of the Science Museum. And again, I don't recall her in all my long conversations with her when she was at the Sunday Telegraph ever really talking about science. But it shows to me, I mean, she's <laughs> almost a poster girl for, for keeping in with Boris Johnson. And I wonder sometimes how, you know, how my own financial circumstances might have been changed if I'd been the poster boy. I, I think this as well. Well, I, I kind of think we've had enough of this tall poppy syndrome, Tim. We've got to stop putting down <laughs> our high achievers and being so mean about them. Stop talking the country down. Stop causing the, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, on, and on that note, that's the end of the show. Um, thank you so much, Alex. My pleasure. Thank you, Arthur. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our guest, Tim Walker, who I hope will come back again soon. Thank you very much, if you can put up with me. We definitely can. Listeners, don't forget, our final live Leicester Square Theatre show of 2022 is on Wednesday the 14th of September. Tickets are on sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon. That's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to some of the backers from our vast and enormous backlog of loyal and brilliant supporters. Hello and a big shout out from me to Keith MacDonald, Emma Brooker, Bevin Doyle, Sam Walsh, Jane West, Shamira, Ryan Leahy, Henry McSorley, Matthew Coffey and Tom F. Wright. And it's best wishes from me to Michael Cleary, Anthony Walker, Will, Ruth Talbot, Carl Pearson, Adam Barnett, David Okoma, Matt Perry, Paul Williams and Phil Walker. And hello from me to Simon Pass, James Laidlaw, Anthony Harris, Neil Sutton, David Faithful, Robert Brighton, James Alteringham, Stephen Cannon, Chris Mordew, and I choose to believe this is the classic Judge Dredd comics artist, Mike McMahon. If it's you, thanks for all the good work. If it isn't, thanks for backing us on Patreon. We'll see you all next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu and Arthur Snell. The producers were Alex Rees, Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofronevich. An assistant producer is Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison and audio productions from me, Robin Lieber. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, 
after the heat wave. Gentlemen, would you wear short shorts? YouGov has been polling the great British public on their feelings about office attire. As recently as 2016, only 37% of people thought wearing shorts to the office was acceptable. But in the last 10 years, held out by a certain global event that will remain nameless, shorts have shot up in popularity. 66% of people now think it's okay for the office. So we're going to talk about this. And to help us, we're bringing in lead producer Jacob Jarvis, who, unlike me, has had to work in suits-heavy environments. Hello, Jarv. Hey, Andrew. He's not actually wearing a suit right now. None of us are. It's, it's, it's great. So, um, uh, you know, let's begin. I think, Arthur, you've probably been in much more suits-heavy environments than me. Uh, I'm going to start with you. Shorts in the office, acceptable or not? I see no reason not to. Hmm. And we can only see you. Oh, from yeah, the... you don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm actually naked from the waist down. No, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Listeners, the, the, the curse of the, the curse of Zoom. I tell you something because everyone's heard of Bermuda shorts, and I thought those were sort of things that you wore, you know, when you when you go surfing or whatever. But I once had a, a formal meeting with a senior official of Bermuda in in a in a mm. hot country, and he was wearing very smart. He was wearing a a shirt and tie, sort of from the waist up, looked like he was in office wear, and then very smart shorts with a crease on them. Yes, that was a trailer for the yeah. bonus bit in so this week's like podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You will also get our weekly mini cast, oh God, what else, every Monday morning and also exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.